Let me encourage you to take your Bible and turn with me in it to the third chapter of the Old Testament book of Genesis. If you have trouble with that, it's the very first book (laughs) of the Bible. Uh, I have to remind myself of that (laughs) so often. Um, I would like to ask as you're turning there, how many of you here have taken Pastor Greco's Sunday school class on covenant theology? Okay, okay, a great number of you, that's good. Well, what we have in Genesis chapter 2 is God gives us the covenant of works. He gives to Adam the covenant of works. And then we come to chapter 3, and right from the very beginning of the chapter, we see the deceit of the devil. We see uh, the fall of man into sin, and the covenant of works is broken. And then immediately, God establishes the covenant of grace. But it's interesting that already the covenant of works uh, has been broken. That is sometimes called, if you're familiar with the shorter catechism as well as the larger catechism, the covenant of works is sometimes called the covenant of life in those catechisms. But I wanted you to have that kind of background in mind as we read from Genesis 3, and I'm going to read from verse 14 through to the end of verse 19. Let us adhere to the reading of God's word. The Lord God said to the serpent, this is post-fall now, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and on dust you shall eat. All the days of your life, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall Be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you in pain. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Would you pray for me and with me as we go before the Lord and and, uh, ask him to bless his word to his people. Let's pray. O Holy Fathers, we bow in your presence once again. We do thank you for your, your, your word. And we would confess with the psalmist that it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And Father, I pray that you would be pleased 
to send us the gracious assistance of your Holy Spirit. May he come upon all of us in copious measures and enable us, Father, to see and to understand and to embrace the truth of your word. And we ask, O oh Father, that in turn it might prove to conform us even more to the image of your blessed Son, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Genesis 3 is a watershed chapter in the Bible. And I say that because it is a pivotal point of division and transition between two phases or two, fa or two conditions of God's creation. The creation that was good and that which is evil. Now since the climactic uh, event of Adam's fall here in the Garden of Eden his plunge into sin, the whole creation, to borrow the language of the Apostle Paul, has been groaning together in birth pains, childbirth pains until now. Indeed, the entirety, the whole of the history of mankind can be summed up really in these verses I've just read. The truth which these verses set before us is the reality that human history is not the mindless outworking of natural processes and events. It is, on the contrary, the unfolding dis disclosure of God's righteous judgment upon his creation. And in particular, I think you'll notice that these verses focus our attention upon this elemental conflict that God has decreed and initiated between the serpent and his seed and the woman and her seed. And from verse 14, we see God declaring successively his righteous judgments then on those responsible for introducing sin and death into his good creation. And as God begins to speak here, what theologians have come to call the Proto-Evangelion, that, that is the first promise of the gospel. God preaches the gospel first of all, you'll notice, in terms of its judgment upon the devil. And so God begins with the serpent, Satan's tool, and then he turns to Eve, and finally he confronts Adam. And there is, to be sure, in these verses, this relentless darkness, but notwithstanding the deep darkness, and it is a, an enormous but, for that darkness, you'll notice, is immediately punctuated and illuminated by this radiant beam of hope that God gives immediately following the breaking of the covenant of works. And that radiant beam of hope in the midst of this darkness and the rebellion, it shines and it revives from the very beginning of this passage, our spiritual lungs. And it breathes into us once again the prospect of life and hope to God's fallen creation. Now I want for us to look at God's judgment on Satan of which we read in verse 15. After pronouncing as we'll see in a moment, his judgment on the tool of Satan, that is the serpent. God declares, I will put enmity between you and the woman, 
between your offspring and her offspring, he, in the singular, you'll notice, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That is God's judgment on Satan. And you'll notice here that it is God himself who personally announces this judgment. And what we're being told here, of course, is that God himself is the first great prophet in the Bible. It is God who announces what is to be. There is no dialogue. There is no back and forth. God simply condemns the beast for his treachery and his duplicity. Now the focus, I would say, is not so much on the serpent per se, the mere tool of God's adversary, Satan, but rather on Satan himself. The serpent is, we may put it like this, something of the mindless tool of the devil. The serpent is condemned in the same way. I think it's kind of interesting that John Chrysostom, who was an early church preacher, he said the reason uh, God pronounces judgment on the serpent, it's sort of like this. Just as a loving father destroys the sword and the dagger by which his son's murder was committed, smashing them into pieces, he will take the weapon and break it in two. Be, the, before he turns to pronounce judgment on the perpetrator of the crime. And you, crime. And you can well imagine a father who is so grieved and broken over something like that. Taking such a weapon and breaking it in two. Before he turns to unleash his vengeance upon the murderer himself. And I think that that's an insight that that's what God is pleased to do here. He pronounces judgment on the senseless tool of God's enemy, Satan. And then the serpent is condemned by God to crawl and slither on his belly and to eat dust all the days of his life. Now there are three things I want to bring out here in this passage. And, I want, and they all three of the points come right out of verse 15. Please notice in the first place... The conflict between the Satan and the woman. God says, I will put, set, or establish enmity between you and the woman. Now bear in mind, who was this woman? Well, she was a creature of God. She was a creature created to be a helper. Someone corresponding to Adam. She was, as it were, Adam's completion which I believe a reading of Genesis 5-2 bears out. She was to be his encourager. She was to be his helper. But she had been duped by the greatest con artist of all. She had believed the lie of the evil one, and she had rebelled against her creator. And what is gloriously underscored here is this, that though she had fallen into alignment with Satan, God declares from the very beginning that he's going to recover her from her alignment with Satan. By the grace of God, she is not to be of the evil one. For God declares, I will now put, set, establish enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman. In other words, I will recover her from her alliance with sin and death, and I will establish Enmity between you and her. Now she had fallen badly 
And she had fallen wickedly, but she had not fallen hopelessly or irredeemably. And to be sure, she has fallen. But God is saying in essence, I will now recover her in my grace. I'm going to recover her from the depths to which she has fallen. And here in these opening words of this verse 15, God is promising the gospel in shadow to Satan. I will reverse her alliance with you and I'm going to do it with enmity between you and her. She had fallen into league with Satan. But now there is to be this enmity between Satan and the woman. And I cannot help but think, dear people, that there is here an astounding, amazing, encouraging word for all of us. For here is a woman who had fallen immeasurably, you would think. Here is a woman right at the outset who was recipient with Adam to all of the riches with which God had provided them. But she had turned her back on her creator. And right here, this same creator against whom she has sinned and fallen and rebelled is determined nonetheless in his grace to realign her with himself, recovering her and restoring her. And maybe you're here tonight as an individual, and perhaps you have fallen terribly. You may think even beyond recovery. And you may be thinking, David, if you only knew something of the perversity or the enormity of my sin, the darkness and the depth of my sin, my dear friend, it matters not how deep or dark or perverse your sin is. I know this, that we find in Scripture that God has been pleased to open a fountain for uncleanness, for sin and uncleanness in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is no sin or uncleanliness that His blood cannot cleanse. For where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And here is God in undeserved kind, kindness coming to this woman, rescuing her from her alliance with Satan and recovering her to himself. Right at the outset, what do we see and what do we learn at the very beginning of the Bible? We see that the God of the Bible is a God of grace. A God who is determined to recover to himself his people. Grace is the great word in this passage. It is the great principial pulse beat of the Christian gospel. It is what distinguishes Christianity from every other religion in the world. But then I want you to notice in the second place this evening. I call your attention to this conflict between the two offspring, the two seeds. And as I've already intimated, here is the whole of human history summarized in a nutshell. God declares, I will put enmity between your offspring, your seed, Satan, and her offspring, or the woman's seed. The whole of human history is the story of a conflict between two seeds. Between those who are of the evil one and those who are of their father in heaven. 
I will put enmity between your seed and your offspring and all who are of you, Satan, and all who shall proceed from this believing woman, her seed. The two will be in enmity with one another continually. Now perhaps you're aware of the beginning, I trust we all are, of chapter 4 of Genesis where we're giving something Something of a snapshot of these two seeds, these two families, and the principal enmity one against the other were introduced to Cain and his brother Abel, both of whom are born to Adam and Eve. And Cain, in his anger, rises up against his brother and he murders his brother. And why does he do this? Well, the Bible tells us in 1 John 3 and verse 12, he did it because. He was of the evil one. There were two sons born to parents. One was of the evil one. The other was of the father in heaven. Two families within one family. And in the eighth chapter of John's gospel, we find our Lord Jesus Christ identifying for us the distinguishing marks of Satan's seed or of Satan's family. You might want to spend some time studying John chapter 8, verses 24 and following. I know it's coming up in our pastor's series on John, but I'm sure it's some months down the road. But in essence, Jesus is saying this to those unbelieving Jews in that place who were seeking to undermine and to challenge him. He says to them, you are of your father the devil, clearly and outwardly. Indeed, you claim to be Abraham's children. You bear his name. But in truth, you are of your father, the devil. Because if God were your, were your father, you would love me, Jesus said, for I came from God. You would hear his words. But the reason why you do not hear his words is because you are not of God. You see, the great trademark of Satan's seed is a refusal to believe in and embrace the one sent from the Father in heaven. Again, the whole of history is but the unfolding of the enmity between these two seeds, these two families. Everything you read about, everything you hear about, at its very core and substance, it is a conflict. It is enmity between two seeds, the seed of the devil and the seed of the woman whose father is in heaven. You see, what we have here, more or less in biblical shorthand, is this panoramic scene of the outworking of the conflict of Genesis 3 and verse 15 and the enmity thereof. Now, the scene and the state of this primordial conflict is not something that is always perceived by the human race. Indeed, it's something which depends upon the perspective of what one is able to view and to see, either in their experience in life or what they read or see. But when you stand on the summit, as it were, of biblical revelation, and you begin to take in its panoramic view, as it were, Little by little, as you're able to view and to see the complete, the full picture, you're able to determine from that particular vantage point 
that God is bidding us and encouraging us to behold the whole course of human history as he sees it from his perspective. And when we begin to perceive it from God's perspective, the history of humanity is reduced to this. There is this unbending, implacable, relentless enmity between these two seeds, the seed of Satan and the seed of the Father in heaven, borne out by the woman. And that is why Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 in particular is more or less a synopsis of human history from God's perspective. And ultimately, there is only one thing that distinguishes between these two families. They may be found in the same biological family. They may even be found in the same ecclesiastical family. But there is ultimately one identifying distinction that divides these two families. And that distinction is allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the sent one from the Father in heaven. Everyone who is born of the Father loves the Son, poorly perhaps, falteringly perhaps, flounderingly perhaps. But they trust the Son. And they embrace him as, a, as their very own. And their greatest shame is that they do so, so poorly. You see, what God is underscoring for us here in Genesis 3 and verse 15 is essentially the same thing that Jesus drove home to Peter and the other apostles. That very verse which was read in our hearing this morning where Jesus looks at Peter and he says in Matthew 16 and verse 18, I will build my church and the gates of Hades or the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You see our Lord in Matthew 16 is really addressing the very same basic thing, the same motive in Holy Scripture, the same reality that God sets before us in Genesis 3 and verse 15. The gates of hell are the powers of hell in the Old Testament. The gates of a city was a place where the elders would meet. You see examples of that in Deuteronomy 22 verse 15. You also see it with respect to Boaz in the book of Ruth. The gates of hell are the powers, the authorities of hell. And Jesus is saying as it were, I Christ, the head of the seed of the woman, will build my church and the gates of hell, that is the seed of the devil, shall not prevail against it. And what our Lord Jesus is emphasizing in that verse is that he is building his church in the midst of cosmic conflict, in the midst of the powers of hell raging against the extension of his church. The context then, which is applicable for you and for me, the context of Christian living and of Christian ministry is this context of cosmic conflict. It's inescapable. Do you wonder why as a Christian that you find your life at times bedeviled and harassed and beset with difficulties by troubles and by trials? Why is it? Why is the world up in arms today? 
Why is it do we continually see nation raging against nation? It's because Jesus is building his church in the midst of world war and the raging of nations against one another, of the plots and the councils of world leaders against God's Messiah as we read in the second psalm. Jesus is building his church in the midst of cosmic conflict. And that, dear people, is the context of the Christian life. It's the context of Christian ministry and why Satan is so active in sowing dissension and discord and gossip and grumbling and fault-finding and complaints in churches. Remember the words of Jesus in the parable of the tares in Matthew 13. He says, an enemy has done this. An enemy has done this. Why? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against spiritual wickedness in high places. The context in which God is building this church today is this context of cosmic conflict. It's inescapable. And even the best of God's people can become tools of the devil. And that is why you and I need to be on our guard against becoming windows of entry or windows of access for the evil one, whereby he's able to mix his evil ways within the fellowship of God's people. But this also teaches us that we should never be surprised, you and I, when our lives are at times all but overwhelmed by wave after wave of difficulty and opposition and trial. There is an enemy. There is an enemy. There is an enmity that God has established, and it continues. And the whole of history is the outworking of that enmity. But then thirdly and finally, there is the conflict here in the ultimate sense, I want you to notice, between the seed of the woman and of Satan. And notice how verse 15 concludes rather remarkably. He, who is this he? He shall bruise, he shall crush your head. That is, he will strike a mortal wound that will finally and conclusively deal with you. And you shall bruise or crush his heel. That is a non-fatal wound. But here you'll notice the enmity is no longer collective in general. But it's made individual and personal. He, he will crush. He will bruise your head. And now moving to a different context. In fact, to the third chapter of Paul's epistle to the Galatians. Paul identifies Jesus Christ there, verse 16, with the offspring or the seed of Abraham. He, Jesus, is the singular entity in whom all the promises to Abraham find their ultimate fulfillment. But the Lord Jesus Christ is also the representative head of all those who are united to him, who are in Christ, who are in union with Christ. And then in verses 28 and 29, Paul writes, For you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ, 
Then your Abraham's offspring, Abraham's seeds, heirs according to the promise. So what we have here in this 15th verse of Genesis 3 is what Martin Luther and others called the Proto-Evangelium. The genesis of the gospel, the beginning of the gospel, the first promise of the gospel. God's first promise to undo Satan's vile and despicable work. So that at the very moment when everything appears to be unremittingly beyond remedy, tragically hopeless, what does God do? Well, he promises to send someone not a something, but a he, a someone, he, a champion who will vanquish the usurper, the tyrant, the evil one. And then notice very quickly two things here about the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. First of all, he will be of the seed of the woman. Mark that well. He will come from the woman. In other words, he will be like Adam. He will, uh, he will be a man who will arise from woman. And just as Satan conquered a man, so it is that a better than Adam will come forth and will conquer Satan. We all failed and fell in Adam. But God had a better than Adam, ready and waiting, ready and waiting. And he, the seed of the woman, will bruise or crush the head of Satan. You see, our great need before God, yours and mine, was someone from our side. Someone from the human side. Because we had failed and we had fallen. And we needed someone from our side to represent us. To undo for us the tragedy of our fall in Adam. We needed a better than Adam. And as God would have it, he had a better than Adam ready and waiting. God's proper man, as Martin Luther was accustomed to calling him. But then the second thing on this final point I want you to notice is that he would not do it without painful, piercing effort to himself. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Christ will be victorious, but his triumph will not be without painful effort to himself. It would be at great cost to himself. And as the word of God continues to unfold throughout all of redemptive history, and we begin to understand, you and I, something of, that, of what that cost might be. We soon discover that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, no remission of sin. And when we come into the New Testament, we find there the Son of God incarnate in the womb of the Virgin coming and laying aside all the privileges of glory beyond our capacity to fathom and subjecting himself to a state of humiliation and suffering that I suppose all the ages of eternity will never be able to exegete for any of us. He bore our sin. 
He died our death. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. And as Isaiah says it plainly, he laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Here in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, knowing his own plan, God is able to peer down through the ages with infallible vision to prophesy and to promise his suffering servant who will vanquish the arch enemy of God and of man. And in the fullness of time, the day would come when he spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. And I say, what a word of hope that is for all of us amidst the wreckage of sin and rebellion. Because a day would come when the Son of God would cry from the cross to tell us, it is finished. It would be a day that would come, as we read about in John 12, when Jesus would say right before he was to die, now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler, the prince of this world cast out. And if I be lifted up, I will draw all peoples to myself. And that would prove to be the crushing of Satan's head. The breaking of his power and strength in his triumph over him upon the cross. Colossians 2 verses 14 and 15. And he would yet trouble us, Satan would. But his power would be broken forever, destroyed, crushed underfoot by the Son of God. As the writer to the Hebrews put it, that through death... He might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. Who would have imagined that in the suffering and in the crushing of his heel, the seed of the woman, Christ, would be delivering a fatal blow to the seed of the serpent. Because when the Son of God cried from the cross, it is finished. All of God's claims upon all of Satan's claims upon God's people had been satisfied and dealt with in full by the sin-bearing sacrifice of the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. That cry of Christ, it is finished, sealed the doom of the wicked one. And he has for the short time, the Bible tells us. And even now, he is a defeated enemy. He may roar, but I like as one preacher put it. His teeth were pulled at Calvary. And so his roaring now is that of a toothless lion. Why? Because he has been conquered by the lion of the tribe of Judah. Christ has broken his power. And he seeks to frighten and unnerve us by his roars. But he does so all to no avail because we share in the triumph, you and I, of the crucified one. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He will crush your head and yes, you will wound his heel. But in the wounding of his heel, that will prove to be nothing short of your own undoing. He will suffer his triumph though. You see, will not be painless, but he will, in the end, 
crush your head. And right at the moment when darkness appeared to be triumphant, God brings this ray of light again to punctuate and illuminate the darkness and down through the history of the church and throughout the history of mankind, that ray of hope continued to shine until it's shining over a stable in Bethlehem. Indeed, until it's shining over the cross of Golgotha in all of its pristine glory to penetrate the darkness. Here then is the first gospel promise. Here is the gospel in shadow. And the rest of the Bible traces, you'll notice, the development of this promise here in Genesis 3 and verse 15 to its fulfillment at Calvary and its consummation as well when Christ shall come again. So we read here of two offsprings, of two families, two humanities, two seeds, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. This, dear people, is the Bible's philosophy of history at its most essential explanation. Thus, the great question this evening for all of us here is to which family do you belong? Whose family are you? Who is your father? Are you of your father in heaven? And if your response is, well, David... I don't really know. I'm not really sure. How can I know that I am of the Father in heaven? Well, the litmus test is simply this. Are you trusting in the sent one from the Father? Are you trusting this evening in the Lord Jesus Christ as the only Savior of poor sinners? You see, if Jesus Christ is not the one upon whom you rest the weight of all that you are, if Jesus Christ is not the one whom you seek to honor above all else, then you need to ask yourself this evening, is it possible that I am yet of another father, the one whom Jesus calls the devil? May God help us then to build our lives upon the one sent from heaven and to be known as part of the family of the Father and to pray that we might live out our family life in the midst of cosmic conflict knowing that in Jesus Christ we belong to the one who has conquered the devil, sin, and death. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let us pray.